children can be dismissed to Children's Church, to the volunteers in the back. It's my pleasure to welcome Peter Lyon. He's the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Christopher Newport University. He's a, a good friend, and if you can even believe it, he's better than me at disc golf. Yes, it's true. Nobody likes false humility. No, it's wonderful to be with you. It's been wonderful to get to know you as my family has moved down here to Newport News. Uh, I feel like I'm still very much in, in sort of the excited kind of new thing phase down here. I'm really still like, you know, walking around Christopher Newport University and each, more, each room I enter is more opulent than the last one, more marble. Uh, each one I think, this might be the nicest room I've ever been in. You know, uh, but even, even the area, you know, I drive across the James River Bridge to see my parents a bunch, and I, I saw dolphins the other day, and it's like, wow, I, I'm still very excited every time I see a bald eagle. Um, and, and honestly, honestly, if there ever comes a time where two F-22 Raptors don't whip over my head, like making a knife edge turn, and I don't instinctively say, sick, I'll be really sad that day. A little small part of wonder in me is lost that something really cool and beautiful is happening and I can't enjoy it. I mean, I'm still at the point where I enjoy just looking out my back window at this gorgeous loblolly pine. must be a hundred years old at least. It towers over my building. It's a beautiful thing to just look and wonder at something, right? It's a beautiful thing to just sort of, you know, there, there's, there's no deeper thought to it than that's just beautiful, that's cool. That's, that's awesome. And uh, I've been enjoying uh, our summer in the Psalms this summer uh, because there's a part of reading the Psalms, there's, there's these moments in the Psalms that are just doing that to God. It's like, wow, isn't God wonderful? Isn't God beautiful? And sometimes that's all the application we need from it, right? And so as we go to the Psalms today, there's, there's a lot in here in Psalm 135, but if all you get from this is, man, isn't God cool? Isn't God beautiful? We'll be okay with that. Let's say, if you would turn with me, we're going to be reading from Psalm 135 uh, today. Uh, in your pew Bibles, it appears to be uh, page 519, I think. I'm reading from the... Uh, from the program. So if you'd read with me from Psalm 135, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel has his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. 
For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of the Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we rejoice in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear its instruction, that you would soften our hearts, that we would long for you to correct, for you to re-put us on the right path, that your word would speak powerfully to us. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth would, would honor you in your word this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look here at this psalm and we kind of have, uh, I kind of see it as, as sort of a bread and a meat psalm. On, on the edges, we have these refrains of praising the Lord, praising the Lord. So we know, like, you know, it's very clear. Like, this is a, this is a praise the Lord saying, like, we're, we're, here to, we're here to rejoice in God's goodness here. The refrains are important and they're filled, you know, it's basically refrains of fullness, all these things, the name of the Lord, the Lord himself, the house of God. And on the the back end of it, you know, we see this, this house of Aaron, house of Levi, house of Israel, you who fear the Lord. It's this expanding outwards. And so what we're hearing here is that the fullness of the Lord, every part of the Lord deserves praise. And all of us who worship the Lord, who, who call Him Lord, are called to this. But today I'm really going to focus here in the middle meat of this psalm. And here we have a bit of a comparison. We have uh, the wondrous works of the Lord, and the works of the idols of our hands. And so today we're going we're gonna to kind of just work out of a comparison here. So we're going to start with kind of, so we're going to kind of do com- competing questions. Is the Lord worthy to be praised? Or are our idols worthy to be praised? We're going to do a compare and contrast essay here today. So let's start uh, with, is the Lord worthy to be worshiped. And we look here and there's kind of two parts to it. Um, It talks about, I know that the Lord is great. You know, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in the earth and the seas and the deeps. He makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He makes the lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. I hear that language and there's a real there's a real beauty. There's a little, there's a real joy. There's a real wonder in that language. And it's tempting to look on that language a little like patronizingly. It's like, oh, the ancients, they didn't understand how the lightnings worked. But I would encourage you not to get lost in a sort of temporal condescension, but to instead actually think about 
how wonderful, how intimidating, how powerful the sight of lightning is. Have anyone ever been like really close to lightning? It's terrifying. The, you can feel like the vacuum. When, like I'm not, I'm a liberal arts major. I shouldn't get over my skis here. But you can just feel the power of it. Let the images of the Psalms work. Don't, don't put yourselves above them. Don't disenchant the world with science terms that you barely understand. Don't take the wonder out of the gathering storm on the edge of the horizon. That's one of the cool things about living in a peninsula, right? Watching the storm come across the water. You can see where the line of rain is. The, the, just the power of that. How, how, how little we can feel. Let that wonder work. It's easy to get disenchanted, right? It's easy to let these things sort of to grow numb to them. I remember uh, one time I had the luxury, the, the pleasure of getting to, to spend a few days in Rome. My brother had done a study abroad there and I kind of went at the end of his time to pick him up. And it's funny to watch the people of Rome just sip a coffee across from a 3,000, like a 2,500 year old temple and never look twice at it. You know, a, a city that's been continuously occupied for 3,000 years. There's all these gorgeous things and it's just sort of like, yep, that's just on my way to the train. But that can happen to us too. That can happen you know, wherever you are. And you almost need it pointed out to you. This is one of the joys of being a father. Is kids grasp this. I think there's a, there's a great reason why, why Jesus encourages us to look with the eyes of children. Uh, when, uh, pretty shortly after we moved here, my son has been rejoicing in having his own room and stays up way too late just running around his room. And one time I went up there in June, and I was like, buddy, you got to calm down. You got to go to bed. And he just grabs my hand and he said, daddy, do you want to look out the window at the fireflies with me? And I looked out that window, and it was magical. The beauty of it just silenced me. Wonder is powerful. It makes us pause. It makes us humble. Think of the analogies I've used. How many of those things... uh, bring to mind our smallness. Think of the language that the psalmist used, that, he, that the Lord is, explores the deeps, the depths that we can't comprehend. The Lord is present and knows them well. He's their creator. He's their sustainer. Wonder. I don't know that there's any attribute that can more daily, hourly affect our posture of worship than wonder. It puts us in a position of of humble adoration. But there's a second part to this question of, of, is our God worthy of worship? Is Yahweh, you know, when we see capital uh, Lord in your text, that's the name, you know, that's, that's how we transcribe the name of the Lord. We know God's name, Yahweh. Like, is he worthy to be worshipped? And we, we get into a motif here in the, in, in the next part of the psalm that's very familiar if you spent time in the Old Testament. A, a listing of the works of the Lord. A listing of the wonderful things he has done through history. 
And we see him describe his great miracles in Egypt as he rescued his people. The kings he defeated in Canaan to welcome his people into inheritance. And I want to encourage you that as you read these, the, the depth of those stories is meant to be conveyed by these references. To imagine all the wonders God worked upon Egypt, all the powerful miracles of darkness and plague, but also of rescue. That God took the most powerful empire in the world and laid it low for a people of slaves. And as we move on to Canaan, It's good for us to remember the words of the spies who were terrified as they entered the land that said, the people of Canaan are like giants and we are but grasshoppers. If we enter into that landlord, they will crush us. They will devour us. They will turn our children into slaves. But the Lord took that inheritance that Israel said could never be theirs. And by his power, he gave it to them. Israel was not able but God was. The inheritance, the, the, the great, the great inheritance of the land was not something earned, but something given. But also as we remember these stories, as we do the process of remembering that the psalmist is asking us to do, there comes with that also a remembering of what Israel was doing along the way. Israel was quick to desire to turn back to Egypt. I mentioned that Israel said, we can't go into the land, we'll be defeated. Well, that generation didn't get to go into the land. When the psalmist describes the great victories in Canaan, that's not the generation that left Egypt. It's their children. Because in the book of Numbers, we get this story where the fear and the idolatry of the Israelites was so great that the Lord did not permit them to enter into the land. The calculus of their worship was wrong. They so feared the people of the land that they would not trust in God. Despite the wonderful things they saw, despite God moving in a pillar of smoke and fire before them, they said, but we fear that more than we fear you. And yet, the Lord still brought his people into their inheritance. God's faithfulness is not dependent on the faithfulness of his people. His power is not dependent on the power of his people. His ability is not dependent on the ability of his people. Why should we worship the Lord of hosts? Because he is great. 
He is powerful. He has demonstrated that again in his creation, in his sustaining of the world, in his movement through history, in his faithfulness to his people. And I would encourage you, as you read this psalm, to remember that as we are called to remember, as we speak this psalm to ourselves, as we list the things that the Lord has given us, we have much greater things to remember. What the prophets of Israel long to receive, long to know, we have seen, we have, we, we, our scripture bears witness to the fact that the Son of God stepped down into this world, was born a helpless child, lived amidst the sin and brokenness of this world and lived in perfect obedience unto death on our behalf and rose from the dead. We have the full evidence of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That though we fail like the nation of Israel, we are redeemed by the blood, not of sheep and goats, but of the Son of God. We are covered. So as we list the wonderful works of God, how much greater is our list than that as the psalmist that we know the fullness of his redeeming power. That there is no, nothing too far from his redeeming power. We have the evidence of the risen Jesus. And so that's the evidence we put on one side. The wonder of beauty, sustained creation, and the knowledge of a risen Jesus. And now we must examine the other half. The idols of our hands. And we have to ask ourselves, are our idols worthy to be worshipped? And it's easy to just shout no and move on. But we have to examine these things. We have to do the work as the psalmist did of examining these things. What do we make our idols out of? Silver and gold is a precious thing. They've always been precious. Man at a early, early in its, his development realized that there was something different, something special about these metals. They are costly. They are costly to find. And they have special properties. It's easy for us often to critique the idolatry. And, and I might need to, un- for some of you, you've heard that word a lot, but for others, I, I, you, we might need to unpack it because you might think, ah, we don't have shrines to things in our houses. We are not idols as the cultic peoples of you know, Mesopotamia were. We don't do that anymore. But yet, if we examine our lives closely, you will find that there are certain things that you carve out special position for, special place for. They get special treatment. They get costly parts of your life. And as I was saying, these things are usually precious to you. And it might be easy to look across at your neighbor and see the things that they carve off. It might be easy to look at TJ and I and make fun of disc golf. I do it sometimes myself. Yeah, but you look at the little precious things in their life and you say, that's silly. Well, if that's kind of the position you put yourself in here, this 
you won't get much from this section, but if you will examine your heart and look, what are the precious things to me, to my time? I think you'll start to see what are those little special shelves you keep in your heart devoted to different things. It's, this is, this is a constant struggle. I remember when I used to do youth ministry, it's very difficult to, to bridge the gap between two people about what's precious to them. I remember doing youth ministry. Part of the job is, is ministering to both parents and to teenagers. And the things that are precious to the parents and the things that are precious to the teenagers are very different things. Often directly at, at odds, the, the teenagers themselves are very precious to the parents. You know, the children kind of make up something that's precious and precious don't hear, you know, you know, that they're good, they're beautiful. What's precious to the teenager? Sometimes it's something as simple as a, a rush of adrenaline. It's an attempt to prove themselves. It's an attempt to do a lot of things that will often endanger their very selves that the parent is, is very concerned about. And the miscommunications often come from it being so difficult to bridge that gap between seeing what is precious to one another. And so as we examine this, this is really, I encourage you, a hard examination of our own. It is easy to sit in judgment on somebody else's idols. But if we walk along with the psalmist, we need to, we need to evaluate. Well, this, is, this is a compare-contrast essay in our own heart. So we need to ask this question. Gold and silver are not in of, of themselves evil or wicked. How does something precious become an idol? This is, this is something we need to ask about. Like, and I think we often, we, we get confused or we get legalistic about things. Um, and we'll even misquote scripture to do it. I'm sure you've heard the term, money is the root of all evil. That's not what Jesus said. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. What leads to a precious, beautiful thing becoming an idol in our heart is love that has become out of proportion. I think huh, we, we can take a very literal example of this. We, we'll return to the Israelites. They're easy to pick on. Very shortly after they received the commandments on Sinai, Moses, is, Moses and Joshua are back up on the mountain, and the people call out for a physical idol. And admittedly, there's a, the reading I understand of the text they're not looking for a different God. They want, they want an image of Yahweh to worship. They want a, a God idol. And Aaron says, oh, I just threw the gold into the fire and it became a calf. No one's buying the story, Aaron. We craft these things. We would love to tell ourselves the same story that Aaron tries to pass off to Moses. Oh, it just, it just happened. No, you spent time with it. You cherished it. You protected it. You babied that thing. You had wonder and joy in something. And instead of seeing that in proper proportion, seeing that as a gift from the creator, seeing that as a cause to worship God, you said, I want this thing and I want it and I want it for me. And I want this thing to serve me. 
Because that's really, why do the people of Israel want a golden calf? They want God to work the way of all the, other, all the other gods they know. I make a sacrifice to you and you do this for me. I want God under our control. A God who can lift up the waves and smash the armies of Egypt is terrifying. I want a God I can control. But our, their cost to us Church, I will tell you this can be useful to you because how costly these things are to make, the cost is how we can diagnose our idols. You know, I used to do this, uh, this sort of like object lesson with a bunch of my volunteer leadership. It was like you take a, a clock and you divide it up and you say like, how much of your day is devoted to each thing? And, you know, and the point of it is like, oh, you, you might see how small a percentage of your day is spent reading your Bible. And, but really, you're going to get to be like, oh, all of this needs to fall under the, you know, like what we're talking about today. Everything here falls under the weight of worship. But it was amazing how this illustration would actually start to, to pull out different things. Because if you grow up in a church, if you kind of experience this enough, if you just kind of get into these sorts of environments where we talk about, you know, sin patterns and what's going on in your heart. You know that we're going to talk about the clock after we write our clock. And so maybe you put a little something out there that's like, oh yeah, I spend way too much time on my phone. Going to have to get rid of that. And you conceal the little thing that you're actually worried has has a hold on your heart. Suddenly you shrink that part. You will see what you're willing to lie for, what you're willing to manipulate your schedule for. The old adage is, show me your budget and I'll show you what your worship. The thing you'll be able to cut off a chunk of your earnings for. These things that get a part of us, but that we're not eager to tell other people about. We're not eager to share about those things. The costliness of an idol often reveals its hold in our heart. But really, what what are we doing here? Return to to the project at hand. Is our God worthy to be worshipped? Are our idols worthy to be worshipped? We even answered that question. Sure, our idols are costly and they're made of precious things and they're about us. But maybe I want things to be about me. Is it so wrong to have something that's about me? To have some part of my life that's just my own to shape and mold? What does the psalmist tell us is the fruit of our idols? That we become like them. And on first whiff, you're like, sweet, that was my hope. I saw that really successful guy. I modeled my life after him. I was hoping to become rich and famous like him. But we get deeper into it. We go, and I would encourage you, let's go through this the way the psalmist does. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there breath in their mouth. 
When something captures a piece of our heart, I, I like sort of the order that the psalmist takes this. The first thing, the first symptom of it is we start to become mute. Maybe even mute about it. It becomes a secret place in our heart. As that calcification, maybe the petrification process continues, we could become blind to the parts of our life it starts to control. We don't even see it. And then maybe more insidious, when other people start to point it out to us, other people discover it, we become deaf. Deaf to correction. Deaf to encouragement. Deaf to anything but the thing we are becoming like. And what is the final fruit of it? No breath in its mouth. It's death. The pathway of idolatry leads to death. The pathway of gathering things to serve our own heart leads to the very death. Our selfishness. We're frankly pretty bad at it. We kill ourselves in our idolatry, in our self-serving. And so that's the comparison. Right there is the comparison that the psalmist wants to make. It's life and death. At the hands of our gracious God, we are given an inheritance. The psalmist speaks of the land, but we know now of the greater inheritance, the inheritance that Jesus has won for us. That we are welcome to sons and daughters of the Most High King. That what he has earned, we receive. Throughout eternity. And on the other hand is the path of idolatry. A slow petrification. A counting of days until we die. Who is worthy to be worshipped? What? part of our lives is dedicated to the worship of God. All of it. It's pretty, we can ask this question at the holistic level. We can also ask this, like we, we take this question and we bring it into the, into the peace, into the little spheres of our life. We might be tempted to say, well, this is my spiritual sphere and this is my work sphere. And what the psalmist is telling us is like, that is like pruning some flowers off a, off, a, off a bush. And you say, all right, clip, clip, clip. This is for this over here. Cut flowers die. Breaks my daughter's heart every time it happens. But they do. We want to bring them inside. We want to make them something special. But eventually, they wither and die. We want to believe that we're the gardener and we're setting up all these different plots in our land and we have this beautiful tree. We're like, I'm growing this beautiful tree of faith, but I also have this cool business bush and this cool friendship shrub. And we're creating false dichotomies and false splits. God is not just one portion of our life. He is the sun that feeds the things we are growing. If we're pruning the bush of our life and we're like, the, the branches want to reach to the sun. 
all parts of your life long for the nourishment of the God who sustains the whole world. The hope of the gospel is that we are his. Listen to the language of the psalmist that is the same language that we can use today, that we are his people chosen by him, not by our own ability or works we have come. But there's a part of our heart that rejects that, that longs to make a name for ourselves, that longs like our first parents in the garden to be like God. It's a long for control. And it's in that moment that I would encourage you is when we most need to return to wonder is when we most need a return to that first part of the psalm where we remember the grandeur, the splendor, and the awesome power of God. There is a humility that comes from delighting in God's grandeur. That is a beautiful humility. It's a reminder, the sight of lightning Tearing a tree apart a little too close to you is maybe the healthy reminder we need sometimes of how much control we have. The sight of a storm whipping across the ocean is a sight that that we need to remind us how much we need our sovereign Lord. I love astronomy. I love the pictures we're getting back from our telescopes the scope, the majesty of the universe, the perspective that that puts on us, while also reminding us that us, a speck that you cannot even see in this picture for us, Christ was willing to die. There is a wonder and an intimacy to our faith that we are all called to. I want you to hear the final lines of this psalm, and I'll finish with this. The final lines that, that, that say, this is not just for the professional Christians. This is not just for the professional worshipers. Not just for those who enter the holy of holies. No, for all who worship the Lord, this is good. And I need you to hear that that is good news. Not that more is expected of you. I've got more work to do while I'm at work. No, but that you can expect more from your gracious God. That his wonder extends in each and every one of us. His wonder extends even to that tedious Zoom meeting. Just like the fireflies outside of my son's window, there are opportunities to rejoice in the beauty and the goodness of God in moments when we are wholly unexpecting them. Available for us if we joyfully accept the humility, the the childlikeness required to experience his beautiful, wonderful glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe 
of your power, Lord. We are humbled by how great you are. How far above us you are. How much you comprehend that is just unfathomable to us. And yet, Lord, you are not a distant God. You are not a God who leaves us to our own devices to scrap for what control we can manage in this hard, difficult world. But you are a God who has stepped towards us, who has made the ultimate effort to bring us to you. Lord, help us to rejoice both in your glory and your closeness that you would love such as we. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.